for me, uh, that is the danger, that technocratic mindset still being blissfully unaware of the consequences, of political consequences, of a number of agendas that Europe continues uh, to, to pursue. <laughs> Double paradox. The European Union's set of founding principles, its telos, so to speak, are undergoing a two-track inversion. The bloc was initially designed to slide gently towards federalization, whilst remaining a largely toothless actor on the world stage. And yet, the opposite has happened. The EU has since grown into a powerful geopolitical player of its own that is internally at peace with the present deadlock of integration. Sometime between the Eurozone crisis of the early 2010s and Russia's ongoing invasion of Ukraine, the EU's entire architecture has been turned inside out. Scholars, journalists, and analysts in Brussels and European capitals are still at pains to gauge the depth of this complete revolution. Stefan Auer of Hong Kong University may have, may have lost some sleep over it. A former and likely future recipient of the prestigious Jean Monnet Chair for EU Studies, he is as astute an observer as any of the bloc's institutional dynamics, and he argues in his most recent book that instead of seeking to tra transcend the laws of politics, the EU would be well advised to heed them instead. In this episode, he sits down with us in Glenn Morgan, Associate Professor at Syracu Syracuse University's Politics Department. Now, as always, Please read and review on Common Decency on Apple Podcasts and send us your comments or questions either on Twitter or by email. And please consider supporting the show on Patreon. Thank you so much for joining us today for this conversation on the European Union. I want to start uh, with you, Stefan. Um, in 2000, Jan Wernermüller mordantly asked in a book about German intellectual life around unification, can one say that if Europe works, Karl Schmitt is wrong? Now, for the uninitiated or the unfamiliar with Weimar uh, political theorists, Karl Schmitt um, essentially argued that conflict was a key part of human nature and therefore its politics. What exactly about the EU's functioning disproves the Schmittian view of politics? And is that anti-Schmittian essence being put to the test by the return of war to the European continent? Yes, absolutely, it's been put to, to a test. One of the key ambitions that has driven the European project was to overcome conflicts. And as you said, from Schmittian perspective, that means really overcoming politics. And this is because for Schmitt, conflict is the defining feature of the politics. He, he writes about the political, that is that special sphere of human existence that's defined by conflicts. And it is one of those things that, that Schmidt is famous for. And it is in this sense that the EU was set out to prove Schmidt wrong. It was a profoundly anti-Schmittian project. It was meant to serve as an example for the world, right? And when you think of, of the kind of foundational myth of European unity, if you want, uh, the possibility of Franco-German reconciliation, which has worked, right? Then it is uh, seemingly in defiance of that uh, emphasis on, on friend and enemy uh, distinction that, that Schmidt thought was, was so important. So, uh, and why, why do we say now that, that uh, it, 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 it's no longer the case? So I, I think that globally in particular, the EU was meant to be 
anti-geopolitical, post-sovereign, post-conflictual. It was meant to embody what scholars enthusiastically refer to as a soft power uh, Europe, right? The power of example. This was the Europe that was going to rule the 20th century, as one of the book titles had it like 20 years ago. It was a Europe that would secure peace in the world through conversation, right? And, and that Europe has not, uh, was not to be. That, that Europe was a delusion, I believe. The delusion itself was only made possible thanks to the U.S. security umbrella, and there the European attitude towards the U.S. is quite, quite odd, right, because uh, there is a lot of snobbery uh, traditionally amongst European elites. You know, they consider Americans retrograde and vulgar because they still speak the language of power. Europe was meant to have moved uh, beyond that, uh, that world, uh, and uh, that, that, I think, uh, proved uh, uh, a massive delusion, particularly in confrontation with Russia, uh, particularly in relation to Ukraine. I think the tragedy of Ukraine was that it found itself in that uh, kind of gray zone, right? And, and while the EU uh, construes itself as a post-political, post-geopolitical power, of course, Putin's Russia is anything but uh, that. And, and that meant that the EU was attractive enough for Ukraine to uh, Ukrainian, for Ukrainians to aspire for uh, EU membership, but the EU was not strong enough to effectively support uh, Ukraine in, in its uh, fight for national sovereignty and the preservation of national sovereignty. Yeah. Glenn, would you like to bounce in there? Yes, no, here is an area in where I agree with Stefan in many ways. I think that uh, it is certainly true that there has yeah. been a certain naivete uh, by many European scholars in hoping that uh, European Union would represent the transcendence of politics and uh, the old geopolitical conflicts would somehow disappear. That hasn't proven to be the case. Stefan is quite right, and I think it is silly to expect it to disappear. But I draw a rather different conclusion than he does. I think that... Uh, the European Union needs to live in a world of conflict and it needs to prepare itself. And I think it is better prepared uh, or has the potential to be better prepared to live in this new world than uh, a world of nation states. And I think that kind of brings us to the, what has been one of the main driving forces for European integration over the past decades. To a large extent, it was obviously politics, and, but also to kind of a, maybe an equal extent, I guess that's part of the question, through law and the judges. And Hans Kelsen, the very famous um, Austrian legal scholar, um, really theorized before World War II that Europe could integrate through, through law. And to a large extent, what we saw in the 1960s especially is what would become the European Court of Justice uh, becoming this force for integration, making judicial decisions which create a lot of conflict with national courts, but also with national governments, which, in a, in a sense, created a kind of de facto constitutional level without actually having a political decision to have some kind of constitutional equivalence. Um, can you maybe walk us through, Stefan, through this integration through law and perhaps how uh, the tensions it created for the 1960s onward? Yeah, so, I mean, we can even continue in that, uh, with that notion of the EU as an anti Schmittian uh, concept because the law uh, within the EU is almost a substitute for politics, right? And, and that is something that Carl Schmitt would uh, 
considered by both the kind of normatively wrong but also uh, not viable. And uh, I cite Hans Carlsen, he obviously was the most formidable opponent of, of Carl Schmitt, but in relation to European integration, there is another leading uh, kind of scholar of, of, of law and legal international who, integration who himself was a practitioner. He was the first president of the European Commission. I'm talking about Walter Hallstein. Yeah. And he coined the notion, a German notion, that, that proved actually remarkably successful. Uh, and, and the German notion is uh, the Europäische Rechtsgemeinschaft, which is not easily translated into English. Mm. Because as German uh, really is, to be honest. Well, yes, it's a compound word, but but it's worth pondering its meaning because it really then uh, the theory of integration through law uh, very much is based, I think, on on that German understanding of the of the of the role that law could play in the process of European integration. So the compound word consists of two words: Recht, which is law, but in German it's not just law; it's also kind of. Uh, uh, an ideal of justice, uh, right? Uh, Recht is, is a good kind of law. And, and Gemeinschaft, uh, it's more than just uh, uh, society. Uh, Gemeinschaft is more than just Gesellschaft, which is a German word for society. It is a kind of community that shares a certain purpose, even certain ideals. So you can see that kind of sense of idealism um, embedded in, in that uh, uh, word. So through law, uh, the law then, then uh, fulfills dual purpose. It, it serves as an instrument of integration, but it is also uh, ultimately also an aim of integration because, and that is what actually eventuated, right? That uh, we ended up uh, with a Europe that is ruled by one system of law, right? There is such a thing now as EU law, and that holds the whole thing together. And that has its advantages, I don't want to deny it, but it also has major. Uh, weaknesses, major shortcomings, because it ultimately depoliticizes uh, a number of, of highly uh, contentious political issues, and, and uh, to, to that extent, it also actually erodes democracy, particularly uh, democracies at, at national level. So that, that's my uh, kind of problem. But there is a vast literature on, on uh, integration through law. There is interesting kind of revisionist literature coming out more recently that uh, challenges this assumption that it was quite a smooth process, right? There was uh, much more uh, kind of pushback against it than, than is often assumed. But, but roughly, I, I suppose, uh, yeah, I would be curious uh, to hear Glyn's perspective on this story. Glyn, do you say uh, genau to what uh, Stefan has just said, or do you have some uh, quibble? Uh, yeah. I agree with, with much of what he said. Going back to this idea of integration through law, if you'd have asked people in the 1950s whether it would be possible to bring eventually 27 or 28 countries together under a common mm. legal system that would be able to regulate uh, a huge tranche of issues of the greatest importance to European people, I think most people would have been very sceptical, think, oh, never work. I mean, that's, it's impossibly utopian to think that you could use law to achieve such an uh, ambitious project. But I think it worked. I mean, the, the integration through law has actually achieved an astonishing amount in, in the European Union. And the question, though, becomes, 
can we rest on our laurels here or do we need to move to other mechanisms of integration? And I fear that we are about at the end of the stage where we can rely wholly on, on law. Um, but two just additional points. One, I think that you can see in yeah. the Brexit process just what a, a form of treacle, as it were, the law represents. It's extremely difficult to get out of it. And uh, European law has worked its way into so many different areas. It's extraordinarily difficult to get out of it. Last point is that the reliance on law is not solely a phenomenon of the European Union. I think in late modern societies, we are seeing so many of, our, of issues move from the political realm into the legal realm. Mm -hmm. I'm living in the United States, and so many of, of, of the issues that uh, divide us are settled at the Supreme Court level. And uh, I think that is something that uh, Europeans need to realize, that the... The role of the law is uh, not to be wholly understood solely in terms of European phenomenon. It's something to do with uh, late modernity. Absolutely. Stefan, do you want to bounce back? Yeah, just very briefly, again, I, I agree with Glyn, and, and I also agree emphatically that that is a, a global uh, phenomenon. But my argument would be that the EU is make this uh, global problem worse. And the problem that we are trying to describe is the kind of juridification of politics. So uh, uh, Christian Jürgens, a, a brilliant German uh, scholar of, of uh, European constitutionalism, talks about European economic constitution. When you see that certain provisions are in place that make uh, that uh, massively constrain economic policies within uh, member states, right? And that is a, a serious problem for democracy at national level. And that problem became much more pronounced, of course, during the eurozone crisis so i agree with glenn that the problem is is global and the united states is a good example of of that problem also but i think the european level brings another dimension to it there is another practical aspect to it and that is that it is next to impossible to change eu provisions you need unanimity right yeah. so there are a number of provisions in place that have a quasi-constitutional status Hmm. which would, in other kind of normal, regular democracies, be open to political contestation, but within EU, they are almost impossible. Okay, can you give an example, Stefan? Well, the European Economic Constitution is one of those examples. The Maastricht Treaty has very clear uh, kind of uh, rules on uh, how much uh, you can spend in any given years, how much debt you can take. Uh, and, and these rules have been violated for, for decades now, but that doesn't... Hmm disprove my point, right? I mean, uh, repeated violation of, of rules is also not good for uh, the rule of law state, which the EU has the aspiration uh, to be. So, yeah, but but any number of areas uh, are, are regulated in, in minute detail, and, and many of those regulations basically have a quasi-constitutional status. Dieter Grimm, a former judge of the German Constitutional Court, uh, wrote about that problem extensively, and I, I share his views on that. It erodes democracy in Europe, I believe. And because I think that kind of gets to the, um, the centre thesis of your um, new book, Stefan, which is that the difficulties within the EUs are the product of its drive to go beyond the age of nation-states. But at the same time, how do you kind of square this? 
how do you make sense of the EU? Because at the same time, there is this kind of federalist drive going on. But equally, nation states remain largely in the driver's seat. And most of the efforts for actually integration over the past few years or so, especially with COVID, actually went through the European Council. They went through the proposals of heads of state like, like Macron. Um, how do you kind of make sense of it? Who really holds the protestas and maybe the autoritas as well? Who has the power in the EU? And how has this balance of power think changed, you think has changed in the past few years or so? Starting with um, Stefan, and then we'll circle back to Glenn. Well, for me, that is one of the key problems, and I, I don't, I, I see it as the dysfunction of the EU system of governance. I mean, even that term, you see, that we have to use. The EU doesn't have a government, it has a system yeah. of governance. So the answer to your question, like, who is in charge, uh, well, nobody knows. And mm -hmm. when you look at EU literature, you know, and textbooks about the EU, that tends to be celebrated, you know. A constitutional scholar once described this phenomenon, you know, like the uh, member states lose sovereignty, but no one else gains it. So he says it's like virginity. You lose yeah. it without anyone else gaining it, and that's something to be celebrated. I am doubtful about the, the, the phenomenon being positive because I think, for again, for a democracy, you need to know who is in charge. And so with the EU, it depends. You are right to say that a number of major decisions are usually taken in the EU Council, and that means that the member states are in the driving seat, you know, uh, that is even consistent with the EU treaties because the member states are, are the, the, in German, the Herren der Verträge, that is, the, they are, uh, uh, they are uh, the masters of the treaties, mm. right? Uh, the EU Commission is the guardian uh, of the treaties. But when you think of, of key moments in which uh, Difficult decisions had to be taken. And, and those key moments in times of crisis, again, uh, <laughs> remind me of, of Schmidt's understanding of, of no. sovereignty and power, right? He asked that difficult question, who is in charge? He said that the one who decides on the exception is sovereign. And, okay. and to answer that question within the EU is, is quite difficult. So it very much depends on what kind of situation they face, what kind of crisis. So when you think of the Eurozone crisis, Mario Draghi was the one who ultimately is meant to have saved the whole thing by saying that he will do whatever it takes to yeah. safeguard uh, the Eurozone. And, and that is definitely not the role that the European Central Bank was given in the uh, Maastricht Treaty, right? It was meant to be an apolitical body. And there you have basically a, a, a banker, a central banker, deciding on the fate of Greece, you know, having an important role then in determining social policies of a member state like Greece. So it massively eroded democracy in Europe, I, I believe, the Eurozone crisis, right? And then when it comes, of course, to foreign affairs and security policy, and now uh, in, in dealings with, with Russia or China, Olaf Scholz is just visiting Beijing as we speak, uh, the member states suddenly have more more input, right? And ultimately, I believe, have have uh, are are in the driving seat, as as you said. I don't bemoan that, but I think basically my problem is that, or where I differ from uh, many many mainstream scholars of European integration, that this is an article of faith that the EU is a fascinating experiment in 
transnational or post-national governance in which member states share sovereignty for a greater good, etc. I believe this story is credible and has worked well in good times, had worked well in good times. Mm. In times of crisis, I don't think it works. It, it uh, exposes the dysfunction of the EU system of governance, and then you have random actors, like whether it's Angela Merkel, the former chancellor of Germany, or Mario Draghi, who call the shots, and, and many people and voters feel disempowered. Clear, any, any thoughts? Well, I agree with uh, part of what Stefan was saying there. It, it's, I think, in theory, the power in the European Union does lie with the European Council. In practice, it doesn't lie with the European Council if we think of it as 27 states. In practice, European power lies with Germany, France, uh, in recent years, Britain, occasionally Italy. And it really is dominated by those three or four countries, France and Germany in particular. It depends a little bit about upon the... The, the personality of the politician in question. I don't think anyone thinks that Olaf Stoltz is, has the same uh, degree of power that uh, Angela Merkel had. But, um, and I also agree with Stefan that to talk about post-national government, transnational government, is a little bit of a misnomer given the domination by three or four countries. Now, the interesting question going forward is, is this structure one that can solve the major problems that are going to confront Europe in the next 20 years. And I think that Stefan thinks that the current structure is not fit for purpose and would like to return to a more sovereign, uh, sovereign Europe, whereas I think that the problems that, that are going to come down, down the path are not ones that 27 independent nation-states can handle and that we will need to move to a more centralised European Union. And this is particularly the case, I think, in um, foreign military and security policy. But there's a bunch of other ones too, which I think also call for more centralisation. Um, we will definitely go back to the kind of idea of a European superstate down the road, but um, let's, go, let's go to Stefan. Yeah, I, 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 you might have misspoke, uh, Glyn, because I said that I advocate a sovereign Europe, right? Uh, and uh, if anything, I suppose I advocate for more uh, repatriation of sovereign powers towards um, member states. But I, I think, I mean, now our conversation is becoming more interesting because what we have in common is that we would like to think openly about power and how it matters, right, on where it is. So I, I agree that the way in which that that entity has worked, it is that it was, it has been dominated by major uh, member states. But so when we look at the current uh, challenge, the biggest challenge, Russia, of course, the yeah. more assertive, aggressive Russia and its war against Ukraine, I find it quite revealing that yes, when it comes to economic sanctions, the EU has played an important role. Yes, when it comes to dealing with a massive influx of refugees, the EU has played an important role in creating a regulatory framework that makes that uh, uh, you know a manageable uh, challenge. But when it comes to the fundamental existential challenge to Ukraine and Europe, and that is how to stand up to that aggressive Russia Nation states, uh, NATO members, play an important role, right? 
not the EU. This is where it's kind of ridiculous in a, in a tragic way when you have Josep Borrell threatening Putin that uh, if he was to resort to nuclear weapons, uh, you know, his army would be annihilated. That Borrell is in no position to make such statements, right? It, it really just exposes the EU's uh, impotence when uh, the high representative for foreign affairs and security policies makes statements like that. What matters is like powerful uh, nation states who are willing to, to make these commitments to Ukraine. Poland matters, the United Kingdom matters, right? I wish that Germany would, would pull its weight uh, too, but Germany actually what it does, and this is where I find the EU's role somewhat pernicious, Germany is hiding behind the EU. It's mm. hiding its unwillingness or, or insufficient willingness to support Ukraine uh, behind the EU. But when you look at the, the, the players who have made difference from day one, it's the United Kingdom, it's the United States. Far away Australia probably has done more than some of the major uh, European countries, right? So in, in the kind of challenge is that when it comes to the kind of existential challenge, right, the question of war and, and, and peace, uh, nation states matter a great deal. Uh, they need to work together, of course. NATO is an organization that brings all these nation states uh, together. Uh, but uh, nobody is going to die for, for uh, the EU. And I don't even think it's such a bad thing, probably, you know. Glenn? I, I completely disagree about this because here is, I think, the major error with Stefan's perspective. that He portrays... Um, people who write on the EU as naive and not realizing where power is, and then holds up NATO as this great alternative. But that view bespeaks a tremendous naivete about NATO. NATO is an asymmetrical military alliance based on US power. United Kingdom and Poland had a marginal contribution to the uh, war effect in, in Ukraine. Ukraine is being saved a, by the heroism of the Ukrainians fighting against Russia, and B, by U.S. military power. If you look at, at, at the contribution of weaponry to Ukraine, it is overwhelmingly U.S. I mean, the, the contribution of the U.K. and Poland is minuscule. If, it was, if the Ukrainians had to rely on the U.K. and Poland, they would have been crushed months ago. And the problem that the Europeans face is that NATO itself is extremely fragile because the likely next president of the United States, Professor uh, President Donald Trump, wants to bring about the end of NATO. And I don't think Europeans, uh, and I include here Stefan, have really come to terms with the fact that the United States is experiencing a wave of anti-democratic populist isolationism and that Europe is dependent for its security on the United States via this asymmetrical military alliance, NATO. Yes, yes. So, so I do not want to speak now in, in defense of NATO. That, that's not, that's not uh, what I try to suggest. It is just uh, to say that, that the EU, the way it is currently governed, with all its dysfunctions on which we agree, would be in no position to replicate uh, NATO's uh, functions, right? We would need a very different EU, and that is something that, that uh, 
you know, I, I think we can have a fruitful uh, discussion about, but it wouldn't be this kind of post-national, post-political, post-geopolitical Europe that then suddenly has an army. I mean, I think that is where I'm in full agreement with the Polish Prime Minister, Morawiecki, who pointed out that if, if the EU already had, for example, uh, uh, abandoned unanimity requirement in foreign affairs and security policies, and, and its position would then have been dominated by Germany. Ukraine would have received almost no support, right, uh, from Europeans. It would have received support from the US and the UK, and, and in that sense, it might not have made that much uh, difference. But if I agree with Glyn that if, if Ukraine was to depend just on the UK and, and Poland, it might not have existed. But if it was to depend on the EU, the chance of it, uh, uh, you know, succeeding against Russia would have been even smaller. And this is where I find the EU's role really, I mean, really pernicious. That is, by creating this kind of uh, gray zone, NATO has its responsibility to the United States, but, but even in terms of proximity and, and the geopolitical importance of, of Ukraine, the EU's role, I think this kind of anti-post-political, post-geopolitical position it adopted proved hugely dangerous. Like the EU was unaware of its power, right? Its very existence. Uh, created a situation that, that the EU didn't take kind of responsibility for. I think we have one last question on maybe the, the state of the of the EU before we kind of start of looking forward of what the EU's future in the next few years look like. But I think Julian you had one last question on nowadays. Yeah, I just wanted to ask, when we sort of look back at the last decade and a half of European geopolitics and domestic politics, 2008 financial crisis, sovereign debt crises, in many European economies, um, the refugee crisis, then COVID hit, and now we have the war in Ukraine. I just wanted to ask both of you how that has changed the mindset in Brussels and the conversation on the EU, um, and how those, have those priorities and reflexes adapted to these new post-crisis environments? And then one specific thing I would like to ask is how it's also changed the role of the Commission president. The old Kissinger saying was, who do I call when I want to call Europe? And increasingly, there's a sense that it's Commission President Ursula von der Leyen. I'll start with Glyn, and then we'll turn it over to you, Stephen. Um, well, I have rather a, um, a cynical view of the mindset in Brussels, because every time I ever talk to uh, bureaucrats in Brussels, I'm always struck with how uh, much they see the world through rose-coloured spectacles. They're very reluctant to criticise what they do or yeah. see any weaknesses and they're very reluctant to change. I think many people in Brussels seem to think they're sitting upon the world's most perfect system of government and that there isn't much to, to worry about. Um, but, I mean, I don't think, moving on to the second part of your question, that Ursula van der Leyen is a very strong person. I think that she was put there by people who wanted to maintain power in the hands of the European nation-states, namely Germany and France. And I don't really see much of what the Commission does is very important or significant. Um, and Stefan, I'll add another another point to Julian's question. I think one other crisis, I, I'm the one who drafted this, this question, but um, one thing I definitely forgot, so I'm not blaming on Julian, is actually Brexit. I think Brexit is another one of these crises that we should add on top of those uh, other ones listed. Um, how has it kind of changed the mindset in, in Europe? 
I, mean, I don't consider Brexit a major crisis because, uh, you know, for me, the UK is just tempting to reclaim control over its destiny, and I'm okay with that. I mean, it is a crisis for the EU to the extent that yeah. one of the large, uh, one of the prosperous member states uh, uh, left because it felt that it uh, could not, uh, you know, successfully fight for its interests within, within that project. My sense is, and, and that is where, where I probably agree uh, with Glenn, that not much is, is changing in, in Brussels. I suspect that the main reflex in Brussels remains the same. Whatever the question, more Europe is the answer, right? Mm -hmm. uh, there seems to be a growing realization that the world outside of Europe is, is changing. Uh, Joseph Borrell just gave this controversial speech about Europe being a garden and out there the world is wild, right? I mean... Uh, you know, the image was, was wrong, but, but it is indicative of the perception that things are changing. But I also have the experience that, that Glyn uh, just, just mentioned. I, I actually debated uh, 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 a fellow who is uh, a, 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 an EU diplomat here, here in Brussels, and, and he talked to uh, Hong Kong students about, about environmental issues, and then he advanced an idea that I, I found absurd, but really coming out from this technocratic mindset. You know, one of the stories that Europeans love telling themselves is that crisis is always an opportunity, and historically there is something to it, right? That when yeah. there were difficulties, economic difficulties, or migration crisis, or whatnot, Europeans came together and came up uh, with a solution. But he applied the same logic to the war in Ukraine, saying that it is a fantastic opportunity for Europeans to accelerate the green transition, you know, the, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, reduction of CO2 emissions and uh, the greenhouse effect, etc., et which, which I found absurd, right? Like, firstly, it completely, uh, it, 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 it presents the, this horrible war in Ukraine as a, as a background to a marvelous, uplifting, European story, but it also ignores the political reality of that green energy transition. Like, uh, you know, Germans have been leaders of, of that agenda. And, uh, and that very agenda actually led them to, to uh, massively strengthen their dependency on Putin's Russia, even after no. uh, the occupation of Crimea. So there you have a kind of seemingly noble political goal, green energy transition, transformed into some kind of technocratic task that is then pursued through this apolitical means. And then people seem uh, blissfully unaware of the uh, catastrophic political impact of that uh, policy when you think that the modernization of Russian army was largely financed by the income, uh, you know, that. Uh, Germans bought so much gas and oil <laughs> from Russia yeah. even after the invasion of, of uh, Crimea. So for me, uh, that is the danger, that technocratic mindset still being blissfully unaware of the consequences, of political consequences, of a number of agendas that Europe continues uh, to, to pursue and not connecting the dots, not thinking about uh, political consequences, not thinking about the real power that the country like Germany has with decision pursued through EU. Um, we'll be moving on now to the second half of our conversation, which is kind of more forward-looking. 
um, on the You This Will Be Our Patron section. Thank you so much for both of you for this fantastic overview of this uh, long-going intellectual, uh, friendly but intellectual feud between the, of both of you for the past few years. Very interesting conversation on the state of the EU and how maybe you see it progress in the years to come. Um, Stefan, thank you so much. All the best for the um, for your upcoming, your, your sorry, your recently published book, European Disunion. And thank you so much again for coming along for this um, passionate, passionate conversation on uh, the EU. Thanks for the kind information. Thank you. Thank you. Stefan and Glynn are both out. It is just myself and Francois now on what was a very lively discussion yep. about the European Union, European politics. So, Francois, just high-level takeaways. What did you think? Yeah. Well, first of all, this is an episode that has been a long time in the making. We actually reached out to Stefan a year ago when we were um, planning an episode on the European rule of law and the conversation on the kind of primacy of EU law. And he very gracefully um, actually told us to invite one of his colleagues, Nikos Kluner, who was a fantastic guest with Paul Craig and um, made for a very, very lively episode as well. But Stefan told us, it's not that I don't want to come. I thought she's more qualified to, to do this episode. However, um, I'm going to publish a book. Invite me then. And he said, and when you invite me, I want you to have me alongside Glenn Morgan, which is my um, intellectual arc enemy. And we've been... Uh, squabbling about those questions for a very long time. So we, we gracefully obliged, and we did that today, and it was a very, very lively conversation. Um, I think kind of the crux of the conversation going on here is, to some extent, you know, the, nobody uses that term anymore, but the kind of democratic deficit conversation, saying, is there, is there the kind of legitimacy, the democratic legitimacy for the EU to take on larger decisions? Um, and it's not an easy question. There's, there's a lot of um, back and forth going on. And, you know, I went back to the conversation at the very start on, on the rule of law and how the courts, to a large extent, drove European integration. And, and, and as, as Stefan rightly points out, it was a tough battle between different judges across different countries. Fundamentally, I think the idea of the EU was to create, through small steps, a solidarity which meant that it couldn't be unraveled. That's the idea between the original creation of what would later become the EU, which, which was to make sure that the steel and coal markets of France and Germany would be so intertwined that war would be impossible. But the thing is, you can only go so far with these kind of small steps before at some point the, peop the people feel like they need to have a say in all of this and decide. And, and this is where the issue comes and where I think it's very interesting to get Glenn's perspective, where he says... Um, We've gone too far in the kind of technocratic aspect of EU. I think at some point it's important, it's healthy, that the people give their input on the EU. Because if you want the EU to have this kind of demos, this kind of European um, political identity, you need to have those debates. You will lose some, undeniably. But if you don't have them, um, it's, it's simply going to create a lot of tension. And it's, that tension is manifesting itself in many cases with the rise of um, populist, far-right, and sometimes very um, anti-EU parties. So, yeah, I think fundamentally the crux is how can we how can we make this European project without at some point getting democratic input and respecting national identities which are not going to disappear um, overnight, of course. It's quite a fascinating dilemma or paradox of European integration 
in that it requires the buy-in of the public, and yet so many of the debates happen without a democratic mandate or without popular consent or without public debate about some of those critical issues. Uh, Just thinking back to 2016, which obviously we have discussed here on this podcast, and also just knowing each other at the time when it happened, it was really Britain's first chance to debate its relationship with Europe since the 1970s. The Lisbon Treaty was not put to a referendum in the United Kingdom, despite the seismic changes it had on British law. And it was in part because of a fear that actually turned out to be right on the part of the Europhiles that if the British people were offered a vote on a matter of European integration, they would vote no. And um, the paradox in all of this is the fierce Brexit debate, which in many ways actually was just as fierce after the referendum as it was before the referendum, actually to some extent created a European political culture in Britain. There's a kind of whole generation of people, you know, the kind of Romaniacs or, you know, strong Remainers, who um, essentially got very much accustomed with, with the EU, with its institutions, and more largely the British public all of a sudden, because of, a, of, a, of difficulties of the negotiations, but also of a whole whatever referendum campaign, really started understanding the very complex institutional network of the EU in a way that maybe few Europeans actually do. Yeah, I was, I was saying, you know, they... Um, Paradoxically, paradoxically, this this referendum and the, the debates that followed, um, they they created a political culture, a British political culture, which ended up being much more attuned to the complexities and to the nuances of what's going on in the EU. And you know that's the real paradox of a, of a Brexit debate. You you only start paying attention to the thing once you miss it. Is uh, is the last yeah, one? Yeah, yeah, it was one of the questions in Prime Minister's questions the other day was about um, Scotland's rightful place in Europe from an SNP MP. Yeah, I think there's something else going on in the conversation, which is Ukraine. And again, we're talking about how the lack of a, currently of a European political demos is kind of so central to the headaches of the EU. And what was going on in Ukraine is quite interesting because there is, again, this blending of kind of um, liberalism and nationalism going on, which we haven't seen since before the... Um, of the of a of a Berlin War and the Cold War, and since the eighteen forty maybe eighteen forty eight in Western Europe, but it's very interesting to see how it kind of creates a a narrative, a function, a mission, a enemy for the EU. Um, maybe in some ways we're going back to Schmidtian politics by creating this kind of enemy, which which creates a kind of common cause. Yes, you know it's funny. Conflict does have a way of either binding people together or tearing them apart. In some ways. Yeah the story of U.S. integration among the states is has been accelerated. I'm not talking, this is post-Civil War I'm talking about before I get jumped on by American historians. Yeah. Um, the power of the state was increased most by yeah. the crisis of the Depression and then the Second World War. And, you know, I hear people yeah. talking about the military-industrial complex without even knowing that they're thinking it. Um, but that's sort of what accelerated a lot of the development of the U.S. state as an integrated polity. Um even the First World War as well uh, accelerated that integration of the states. And there was, I guess, some expectation that Europe would follow a similar path. Um, Strategic autonomy had been discussed prior to the invasion of Ukraine, um, as this podcast has covered frequently. But, you know, as was pointed out by our guests, there is a, a sense among some observers of Europe that European countries don't actually want to take responsibility for their own security. I mentioned it um, during the episode, but if you're ranking the 
three biggest givers of military aid uh, as individual states uh, to Ukraine, it goes the United States, the United Kingdom, Poland, and then it's followed up by Germany and Canada. Um, as a percentage yep. of GDP, it's primarily Latvia, Estonia, Poland, Lithuania, Norway, who are giving the most really? as a share of their GDP. So the big hitters in Europe are not embracing this new opportunity for a security role for Europe and a security role for the European Union. I, I would just say this about France. France is very uncomfortable about publishing the aid it sends to Ukraine, which is why they often perhaps come up as kind of um, dragging their feet when a lot of the help they, they, they send is um, under the radar, but rather not publicise it um, too much. But yes, we haven't been on the level of, of the United States for sure and, and the UK, and even kind of in relative terms, Poland and, and some countries in the, in the Baltic. Um, there's, there's one thing I would actually add, because Glenn mentioned it when talking about what was sort of winning the war in Ukraine. And I think this is an element where perhaps Europe could define itself differently from NATO in terms of security assistance. Oh. If you look at the conflict on the ground, yes, US military aid is absolutely indispensable, but a lot of the military advances that the Ukrainians are making are not using big hitting weaponry. A lot of it is simple, low cost weaponry that you can get from other, um, other countries, including the TB2 drone from Turkey, which we have talked about, but also the availability of Starlink in Ukraine. We don't yet know what impact that's having on the battlefield, but it's certainly been a positive one. And then lastly, there are numerous videos out there that you can find of Ukrainian troops using a drone that you would buy off of Amazon to hit Russian ammo depots. Yep. That is not a high-tech piece of equipment. It is not a high-cost piece of equipment. But it is having a market effect yep. on the battlefield. Um, great. Well, special thank for our two guests for coming. We talked a lot about uh, Stefan's book, European Disunion. Um, but there's an older book which was published by Glynn, which is quite interesting and created quite a conversation. Um, the idea of a European superstate, public justification, and European integration, uh, which he published back in 2006 or 2007, I believe, um, which is a very interesting conversation for those who want to think what a European superstate would look like. Um, okay, thank you so much for both of our guests for coming on the show. And uh, if you want to listen to the full conversation we had, mainly on the future of EU and maybe a European superstate, um, you need to join us on our Patreon, where we have these wonderful, extra long conversations and in-depth conversation and following the, the main part of the content. Um, okay, thank you so much for you. And, uh, see you all next week.